0: Well, it's good to see you to see many familiar faces and some new faces in the building. I do hope you'll stay with us for lunch uh, after church this morning. I going to begin this morning by talking about the first time I ever met my wife, Charlotte. Uh, she's not actually in the building. She's serving at a kid's church, so here we go. We were at a Christian conference out in Windsor, and I was talking to one or two people, and then she entered the conversation. And I've never had a movie experience like this, but it was sort of everything just slowed down, right? I was sort of like I was just gobsmacked, like I was like, I was just like, whoa! Like this beautiful woman just walked in, and I was just like, and I, I can still remember it, like it's just a slow motion. I don't know from a bar or soap, but I was smitten, right? T- but to be honest, the first conversation we had was a bit dull, like it was just about handshakes, right? That's it. But I pursued another conversation with her, and another, and another dates, proposals, marriage, and as I've gotten to know Charlotte, you know, found out she was a competitive hurdler, represented Australia, that was a shock, uh, and found out that, you know, she was a country girl, her father was a beef farmer out rural, more and more I found her competitive side, her empathy, her care, and even the other day after almost 11 years of marriage, found out something new that I didn't even know about her. The Charlie I know today is very different to that first conversation about handshakes. And you know what's interesting? When it comes to the average Christian, we meet Jesus, are bowled over by his love, but often we just hang out there in that space and we miss out on knowing who God is. And one of the most common ways that we do that is we put aside the Old Testament and think, that's a bit too scary, that's a bit too big. But in doing so, we... Miss out on knowing the God of the Bible. And so that we don't miss out as a church. What we're going to do, we, we do every year is we take an Old Testament book and we do it so that you can have a richer, deeper relationship with God. You can know Him more. And so, Deuteronomy is that book that we're looking at. Now, whether you're familiar with the Old Testament or not, just a bit of a recap about where this book fits in, right? God's people. Have been rescued from Egypt. They were slaves in the oppression of Pharaoh and they, God liberates them, frees them with Moses as their leader and they go through the Red Sea and they're about to go to the Promised Land. But because they grumble and complain and whinge the whole way, they're the kind of people you don't want to give a feedback form to, right? God punishes them and what should have been an 11-day journey becomes a 40-year journey where they stay in the deserts. Going around and around and around, and at the end of that forty years, where the old generation have died and a new generation has risen up, with Moses as their leader, they're on the cusp of the land, about to enter it, right on the edge, and it is a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, if they had a photo, they would have taken it and hashtag definitely no filter, right? It just would have been beautiful, stunning. It's almost like a school excursion taking a group of kids to wet and wild. And there they are, pumped to go in, but they need to be told before they enter how they are to behave, some warnings before they enter this promised land. Now, you know what the plot of Deuteronomy is? There is no plot, right? It's three sermons by Moses and then Moses dies, preaching his hard work, right? We're going to look at beginnings of the second sermon in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy kicks off at Deuteronomy 5. And the focus of today is really this. God has chosen to love his people. The question is, will God's people choose to love him? That's the big idea. So let's start with one of the most famous parts in all of Deuteronomy. The Jewish community, they call this the Shema, right? Deuteronomy, have a look, page 155 of your church Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. It's so important that if you speak to most people who are Jewish, they will have memorized these verses. They are very precious, even so, have written them around their room, uh, around their home. It begins like this Hear, O Israel. Just as a side note, the word Shema actually means listen. And it's not listen like, are you listening? But like listen and obey, right? Hear, O Israel, are you listening? The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The first and most important thing is, do you know who God is? Because there's only one God. There's no others. Because when it comes to loving gods, it's not like there's multiple options. Because they're about to go into the promised land, right, where there's a whole bunch of deities, idols, where people are worshipping all different things. And when drought or famine strikes, it is so easy for them to go to the local God down the road, the God of fertility. hardship comes. But here it's saying if you go down that path, you're pursuing nothing because there's nothing there. There's only one Lord. Verse 5, it continues. So in light of that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What's the key word? All. This is a whole heart of devotion. Every part of you All of your being. Now, what's interesting, right, as modern Sydney Siders, we're kind of down with that, you know, sort of love God, sort of like with all of us, with all our conviction, right? But just like the word hear is not just listen but obey, the word love here is not just a feeling but it's a decision. To love the Lord your God, it's not just an emotion but a choice. It's not a guessing game but it's spelled out. Because verse 6 says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. That if you're to love God, then it means obeying his commandments. Now, a lot of people think the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. So the God is is very angry and then it sort of mellows out in Jesus Christ, right? Now, there are differences between old and new, and we'll get to that in this series. But God does not change. He's the God of the ages. And one prime example of that is Jesus said something very similar to these words in John 14, where He says, "If you love me, you keep my commands." God has always been about this; He doesn't change. But to be honest, the idea of love and commandments going together—it kind of really doesn't gel. Does it? It's kind of like milk and orange juice. It's kind of like, eh, this is love and commandments, right? Because love, you sort of feel like spontaneous, right? No boundaries, impulsive, no commands. right? But true love, when you think about it, doesn't work like that. Let's talk about love languages for a moment. What you know about love languages is basically all of us have particular ways in which we feel loved. So some of us feel really loved when someone stops and shares some words of appreciation. But the person next to you might feel really loved when you buy them a, just a gift, and it was a thoughtful gift. For others, I've been spending time together. A big hug or acts of service. All sorts of different ways. But if I went round the room right now and I said, all right, I'm going to tell you each of you what your love language is. So Matt, yours is words. Uh, Anna, yours is uh, time. Uh, Kenji, yours is going to be uh, acts of service. Uh, Joe, yours is going to be physical. Uh, it doesn't work like that, does it? I can't tell you what your love language You need to tell me how you feel loved so that I can love you. And the same is for God. We don't tell him how he is to be loved. He tells us. And the commandments are the articulation of that. If you want to love God, if you want to love me, God says, then this is how you do it. And the commandments show that. You don't have to guess they're spelled out. And in chapter 5, there are the Ten Commandments. There's a whole bunch of other commandments later in the book, but let's just have a look at the first, the, the Ten Commandments. You could also say there are ten ways of how to love God. Let's have a brief look at them. Just as a side note, verse 6 is not a commandment. It says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, God has saved them, now they can obey. Verse 7, verse 2, what is it, verse 15 our first four commandments are all about how do you love God, that He wants to be loved God, loved exclusively. First commandment. Not to make an idol, because in the end you'll start worshiping the statue more than the God, more than God. Don't misuse His name. Yahweh, it's a precious name. Fourth commandment: work six days, rest on the seventh, because the seventh is a worship day for the Lord. These first four is how do you treat God? How do you love him? And how does he want to be treated? But the next six commandments are about how do you love the image bearers around him? Because God is loved when you love his image bearers and treat them well. So it says do not murder. In other words, your neighbour has the right to life. Do not covet because your neighbour has the right to security in their marriage. Honour your parents because your Parents have the right of respect. God is saying, if you love me, this is what it looks like. But why commands? Why do they have to be commandments? Because at the end of the day, friends, it shows what's important. You know, when lockdown and with COVID and all that, the government kept putting out health orders, commands. This is what you're supposed to do, all these consequences. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to protect us as a society and they're not naive about our inclinations, right? We like to find loopholes in all sorts of ways, and COVID kind of exposed that in all of us, right? Yes, but dot dot dot. What is important is commanded. What is not is just recommended, right? And these are important to God. But the Shema is not finished. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter six. Verse 7 onwards. It tells us that in order to love God, we want to share this love of God with who? The younger generation, children. It says, verse 7 impress them upon your children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. And it goes on. This is a word specifically for those of you who are parents. But can I say, it's not exclusively to parents, right? Parents are the primary disciple of their children. If you're a parent, that's what God's called you to. Do. But if you're an auntie and uncle, if you're a grandma or grandparent, if you're a godparent, child, God if, if children, you, do not underestimate the impact that you have, particularly being part of a church family, because you have more of an impact than you realize. So what I want to do is just let unpack this a little bit and what this means, this impressing them upon your children. Because that word impress, uh, can, you start telling children about Jesus, about the Bible, and you can sort of think, am I brainwashing them? I remember reading the story of Noah's Ark with my children. Like, do I believe this? Like, Am I just brainwashing them? But then I realised everyone impresses, everyone brainwashes. If a child asks you the question, is God real? Whatever you say to that answer, the question, yes, no, maybe, we don't talk about that, you are impressing a worldview onto the child. When a child asks or says, John hit me in school, whatever you say in response, hit him back, tell the teacher, be kind, you're impressing a worldview onto you. everyone does it. Everyone brainwashes children. It's called parenting, right? And you can't help it. The question is, what are you impressing upon your children? Okay? And you might be thinking, yes, but I don't like the judgmental stuff. To be honest, if you talk to your child about global warming, about the effects we're doing and where the world's going, that's a judgment story, right? And we tell kids all the time, aka Greta Thunberg, right? So we're, we're doing this, right? We need to, what are we impressing upon our children? And if you're a Christian, and you have children, this is the call that God has placed on your life. And what I love about it is this teaching, this discipling, it's all of life. It's not just in the classroom. It's all of life. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, you lie down, when you get up. Parents, in particular, let your children see you talk about God. You might be going for a bushwalk. And just praise God for the Sunset, the little bugs. When you go to a theme park, right, and have a blast of a time, say, you know what? This is just like heaven, but so much better. Let them hear you talk about God. Let them ask questions. You know, you're going for a walk, and they will bring up questions all the time. Just from my house to the school, it's amazing how the kids will ask all sorts of questions, like, who can get married? Does God exist? Is heaven and hell real? It, they let them ask questions and the time to answer them. Let them see you worship and praise God. I mean, that's why this grace such a great day, is that parents are in the room. Uh, sorry, children are in the room, seeing their parents, seeing other members of their church community, singing to God, sharing in Lord's Supper, praising, praying God. That is such an important thing. And can I say they notice when coming to church is particularly hard, and it's easier to say at home. And they are learning from you in more ways than you realise, oh, okay, it's not easy, but mum and dad, they still think we need to go to church. It must be important. They're watching. And the big thing is this, is spend the time just to read the Bible and pray with your kids. They did some research to say the number one factor in kids remaining in the faith as they get older is five minutes a day, reading an age-appropriate Bible with them and praying. That's it. And I know what you're thinking. James, I just do not have the time for this. look—I Everything is full on. But can I say, we have got things around the wrong way. All God calls you to do is love your kid and share the love of God. That's it. But we've kind of added, in our culture in particular, a whole bunch of extracurricular things which swamp us and overwhelm us. Previous cultures used to sacrifice children. We sacrifice everything for children, right? As one psychologist said, the style of parenting is the most exhausting style of parenting that has ever existed, right? They would just give and give and give and give. But Jesus wasn't joking when he says, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. I just want you to love them and share Jesus. That's it. And it is such a blessing, friends. I remember a number of months ago, Audrey, my eldest, was really shaken up, really worried that she didn't know if she was going to make it to heaven. Just fear. And to say to her, you know, Audrey, at the end of the Bible, God says there's there's a book of life that he has. A book there, everyone who's put their trust in Jesus, their name is in that book. And you know what? Your name is in that book, Audrey Galea. And the good thing about that book of life is it can never be rubbed out. It can never be rubbed out. And the smile on her face, I mean there's nothing better than that. There's one more aspect of loving God and obeying his commandments, which we need to look at. One more thing. Deuteronomy gives us a reason on why we are to love God, but to be honest, it's often not what we expect or even what we're comfortable with. Have a look. Chapter 6, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Now, there's a destroying part. We're going to look at that next Sunday, right? It's also Mother's Day, so anyway, bad combo. But we're going to look at that next week. I would just expose it, just expose, flesh out the jealous word. Now, to appreciate why God might be jealous, you need to understand that God's people, the Israelites, unlike all the other people groups at the time, God was in covenant relationship with them. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2, it says, The Lord God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Now, covenant is not a word we use often. It's kind of like a hybrid between a legal contract and a promise. The closest closest thing is probably a marriage in our culture. But God has chosen the Israelites to have a unique covenantal relationship where they were to be his people and and he their God. And they were to reflect God's love to the surrounding nations. It was a unique relationship. And because of that covenant relationship, this is where jealousy comes out because jealousy can only happen in covenant. You may have know the person Oprah. Kind of a big deal, right? I remember watching an interview with Oprah where she said, she's listening to a Baptist preacher who said that God was jealous and from that moment, she turned away from the God of the Bible because for her, the God that was jealous, no. And I'm with her if God's jealousy is kind of like our jealousy, you know, you're jealous of someone's luscious lips or their biceps or the an Instagram followers they have. If it's that kind of jealousy, that's petty, right? But the kind of jealousy that God here is talking about is the kind of jealousy that if you're married, how do you feel you found out your spouse was committing adultery, sleeping with someone else? That right anger... That right jealousy wells up and that is good, isn't it? Because they made promises to you, to be exclusive to you. This is the jealousy that God feels when his people go wandering. That God has chosen his people, promised to be there with them. And the problem is, the question is, will God's people be faithful to him? And you know what? The fact that God is jealous shows that the relationship is real. Because if God God's people just went to other gods, and God was like, eh, whatever. That's a robot. That's not a relationship. He is affected by the actions of his people. See, they're about to enter the land, the promised land, and they will see other gods, other idols, Malak, Baal, Dagon, and they would go to them for security, for worship, to fit in because all the other people are doing. It seems more powerful, more alluring. And you and I, for those who are Christian, we are in a world where, yes, there's other gods, but there's also other idols that are so alluring, like sex and money and wealth and power. And we go to them to find our meaning, our satisfaction, our identity in. And though we say things like "Yes, but I'm an adult," "Yes, we're just too consenting," "No one's hurt," yeah. as a Christian, as one Corinthians ten says, we arouse the Lord's jealousy. He is jealous. He is affected by our behavior when we choose to break His commandments and go elsewhere. That the relationship we have is real and dynamic. See, the Israelites stood on the cusp of the promised land. They knew God was faithful. The question is for them that Moses keeps saying, will you be a faithful people? But if you know the story, you know they fail miserably. For as soon as they enter that land, they systematically break every single commandment, one after the other. It's almost like Adam and Eve when they're told, don't eat from that tree. They almost go straight towards it. See, God knew that his people would fail. He knew that in giving these commandments, they would never be faithful. They would never be the people they're supposed to be. They're fully devoted to God. But God goes to extraordinary lengths to regain the devotion of his people, to regain a perfect relationship. That's why the main metaphor in the whole Bible between us and God is of a marriage. Where God is like a groom and his bride his people, and though his people have walked out on him multiple times, God spends the whole first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, calling her back, sending her love letters, as it were, prophet after prophet, come back. My promises are there. I haven't gone anywhere. Come back, come back. But they fall on deaf ears. So Jesus comes personally. God comes personally. His word is loving that, so He comes face to face. And where is He born? France, Maldives? No. The Promised Land. As an Israelite. He is like the Israelites, but so different. That though we were unfaithful, God's people were unfaithful, he was not. Though they broke every single commandment, he kept every single one of them. He is the only one who says, I've lived, not only memorizes Shema, but lived it out that he truly loved God with all his strength, all his might, all his soul. Do you know why he did this? Do you know why? God is so devoted to your devotion. He is so jealous for your love, a right jealousy, that he doesn't want just half of you. He wants all of you to be in relationship with him. That though we walked, he pursued again and again that it drove him to that ultimate act of love, death on a cross. Why? So that his spirit could dwell within you to incline your hearts to actually want to love God, to actually want to obey his commandments. Friends, when it comes to loving God and obeying his commandments, we we stand like the Israelites, right? But we stand with far more certainty, far more fullness, far more awareness of this God of love who has loved us, to be us, to die for us, to incline our hearts to want to be devoted to him. Now one day our reality will catch our identity. In heaven where we meet Jesus face to face, there all of us can say the Shema, that we love God with everything and our eyes do not wander. But until that day, we stand as redeemed people, loved by God, the question is, will we obey his commandments and in doing so, show that we love him? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come to you know, knowing that we want to love you. You've been so good to us. But we fail again and again. But we thank you, Lord God, that you did not leave us or abandon us, that you are so for us and for our good. You died on that cross for us, Lord. That Your your Holy Spirit dwells within us. That we would love you inside out, through and through, with all that we are. And we ask, Lord, that in the days and weeks to come, when we are tempted to look elsewhere for another type of love, Help us to know that that love is empty and that there's nothing there. But that you love us to draw us back. That we would love you and obey your commands because that is where life is at. That is where true love is and may we never forget it, Lord. For your glory we ask. Amen.